Welcome to Q&A, the podcast series of conversations recorded with artists in the Cadditch and Morrissey Galleries at St. Ambrose University. Andrew Hewitt operates the Big River Findery, formerly in Davenport, and now in the Atlanta region of Norcross, Georgia. We spoke with Andrew about his show in the Cadditch Gallery called Bridges, a selection of prints from the Midwest chapter of the Guild of Book Workers. Hello and welcome again to another Cadish Gallery podcast. I'm joined today by Andrew Hewitt of the Big River Bindery in Davenport. And uh, we're here to discuss the newest show in the Cadish Gallery, which is uh, called Bridges, a selection of prints from the Midwest chapter of the Guild of Bookworkers. I guess I'll start by asking if you and the Guild had done a project like this before, if this was the first time that you had organized something like this with them. I've helped the Midwest chapter of the Guild um, organize an exhibition in the past, but this is the first time that we tried an exchange of prints mm -hmm. followed up by a binding or a boxing of those materials. Yeah, we're pretty familiar around here with exchanges. We kind of try to do one every year now for the Morrissey Gallery. I've never seen the uh, follow-up with the individual books. description of the show, we have each of the prints from the exchange on the walls, and then on pedestals and shelves we have each guild book worker made an individual box to store that edition of prints, that set of prints. And there's a wide array of structures and forms. Totally unique to my experience. Is, have you seen that done before? Uh, some of the other chapters in the guild have done that. Mm. I think that the, the membership of the guild spans from traditional bookbinders and conservators to papermakers and printmakers, and so we all have our own strengths, but many of the members are willing to pitch in with something they're not as familiar with, try it out, and then play to their strengths in the other half of the, the, the exchange. So there are a number of printmakers in here who don't make a lot of prints. Well, there are a number of members who, members who spend more time making bindings or conserving books, or making paper, or doing other things. Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a wider array of prints. You wouldn't say that they're necessarily all made letterpress. No, actually, I think very few are. Actually, so there are lino cuts, and the lino cuts wouldn't have been done on a letterpress. They might have just been done on a tabletop on, press. It just depends on, a, on their individual... On an etching press. Yeah. We opened it up to any sort of print media, including digital prints. I don't think we ended up with any of those in the end. Mm. But, yeah, depending on what kind of equipment access people have, I think there's only a few, two or three, that actually have were most likely done on some sort of a letterpress. Mm -hmm. You know, I went through the University of Iowa and, and spent some time at the Center for the Book, so I'm generally familiar with sort of the field as it stands today, but I wonder if you could describe a little bit about what's happening with bookmaking, contemporary bookmaking. Uh, you know, I've had a few visitors come in who just, it just was completely off the radar. They had no idea that people were, you know, A, available for rebinding books, you know, B, making sculptural tunnel books from hand by hand. We're living in a Barnes and Noble world, so, or, or now an Amazon world, really. Describe a little bit about, uh, how, you know, the range of what's happening with books. Well, I think there's a number of different avenues. There are still traditional bookbinders who will do a specific book for you. They'll rebind a book. They'll 
do a leather cover with um, decorated colored onlays or, or additional layers of, of leather, or they may do um, decoration either in blind or with gold. So that business is still out there and people are still doing that. It's not a huge business nowadays, but there's you know a long tradition of people doing design bindings or books that are uh, redone in kind of fancy leather design. So if you had inherited a book through, through the family that was of value, but it was deteriorating, they would perhaps come to you and ask, is there something you can do with this to right. yeah. get it back up to its original yeah. standard or even mm -hmm. better maybe? Mm -hmm. Well, and a number of the participants in the show spend uh, their work hours as conservators, mm. um, where they actually concentrate on restoring and repairing books and paper items. Some of them are in institutions mm -hmm. who work for university libraries that have large collections of, of historic or older materials. Some are in private practice doing repair in their communities. Mm -hmm. So there's that element as well. There are also artists who are interested in the book form. Mm -hmm. So artists who, who like the kind of the sculptural three-dimensional aspects of the book. Mm -hmm. Working with something where you have elements of surprise, where you have to turn a page to see what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. And uh, works that just fit better, artwork that just fits better in the book form. Mm -hmm. So it's going quite strong. There's a number of university programs and classes around the country concentrate on it. There's a, a national association of collegiate uh, book arts professionals. Hmm. So the field has been yeah, really growing over the last few years. The interest in letterpress and handmade things has really helped that. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Um, maybe with the previous artists of the show before this one who are connoisseurs of screen printing equipment, you know, but they had described uh, letterpress. Letterpress is going up in value. Like the Vandercooks or the mm -hmm. larger scale presses being actually very difficult to get. Mm -hmm. They're in finite supply because they're not manufactured anymore? Or? No, not for a long time. Yeah. So it used to be um, letterpress was the way that prints were made, you know, books or newspapers or pamphlet or flyers, brochures. And um, in the 1980s, everyone was moving to offset printing because they could do things quicker and cheaper and right. higher volumes easier. Right, right. And so all this equipment either sat and collected dust or started getting thrown out. Mm -hmm. um, back Spread. in the 80s, people would give you these presses if you would take them away. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, get it out of my shop. Uh, we yeah. need the room for other stuff or other equipment. Right. Um, and it really wasn't until the mid-90s when kind of the advent of Martha Stewart and the handmade was really coming back and there was a lot of interest. DIY, yeah. So she was really interested in um, kind of higher end invitations and programs mm. and, and items and really embraced letterpress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So nowadays it's, it's a process that's used for high end wedding invitations or specialty business cards or things like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you know, they start making, stop making this stuff in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And there's just not much left around. But there are ways around at least the loss of type, right? I mean, I guess with the, what is it, the uh, polymer plates? That's yeah, so it used to be that um, there were typecasters, so, so firms and individuals who would make sets or fonts 
of type for you to be to print with, and then eventually you'd um, either return it to recycle it or kind of would save it mm -hmm. for the time that you need that again. Mm -hmm. There still are a few typecasters oh, really? still around, less than half a dozen maybe, <laughs> who are doing it on a regular basis. But yeah, since the 90s, the that specific equipment you have to have a yeah really big, big yeah heavy Polish equipment kind of with, yeah. <laughs> with hot lead squirting around lead, and, yeah yeah so <laughs> but um, there are photosensitive plastics out there that work really great. You're able to get a three-dimensional matrice or plate mm -hmm. that you could then print from. It allows you to do kind of kind of more free-form setting of type and image mm -hmm. that you can then reproduce quite right. easily. Right. So. Right. I spent a semester setting type for poems for a book, and it was incredibly tedious. Incredibly, I mean, I listened to many podcasts doing it, so in some ways it was, was fun, and time spent was a luxury at, in graduate school, right? But the ability to set the type with little slivers of lead versus just arranging it on the computer and then I guess what hitting sending it away for the polar if you have your own printer to just quick print and get that plate exactly as you want it that's quite a bit different isn't it yeah. yeah but I think there's something interesting about spending that much time with a piece of text yeah and really kind of embracing it really slows sure. you down and I think you get a, a different appreciation of that text having set it letter by letter yeah. and arrange it by hand yeah, especially poetry. I think it really makes a lot of sense with poetry to really ruminate over those words. Okay, so then, so we've talked about this range of the guild, the people in the guild who are either conservators or artisans, artists, sculptural artists, and that kind of in between, everyone's sort of someplace on that spectrum, mm -hmm. making a sculptural object that could be considered a book or working with uh, in an archive setting. Where, where do you stand with all that? Where's the place in that uh, spectrum? I, I guess I have my feet in many waters. And, uh, during the day, I spend much of my time doing conservation. So mm -hmm. I have a shop here in town. There's a, a need, there has been a need for a conservator in private practice, and so I've been lucky enough to get a fair amount of that business. With the local or just everywhere? You get Mostly you, local, really? but spanning Iowa and, and Illinois as well. So I do a lot of work with that, but I, I started out as an artist, and I love making artwork, and so I try to make artist books or prints whenever I can. I do some new bindings, so if someone's doing a family genealogy or if someone has a particular book they want rebound, kind of in a fancy way, I do some of that as well. So I, yeah, could jump back and forth depending on the time and, and what ideas I have I'm working with. Yeah, and the Big River Bindery, uh, how, how often do you offer classes? Yeah, I offer there? workshops usually a half dozen times a term mm -hmm. of various types. I have a full letterpress shop with a couple of presses, so I can offer some letterpress classes. I do various book binding and book structure classes, paper arts. This term I'm doing a pop-up class, so kind of depending on what people are interested in and uh, what I haven't had a chance to offer recently. And you find a reception in the Quad Cities? Or yeah, in the yeah. you know, it's up? growing. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's always hard to know how to kind of reach the right people, but getting some, some, I have a few followers who come to a number of the mm -hmm. classes, and I have some other ones who, who pop in and try things out, mm -hmm. so it's uh, it's slowly growing, so I'm happy with it. Cool. Well, let me ask you about your individual 
artistic practice. The, the print that you made for the show is pretty interesting in, in the way that it takes letterpress type and uses it for its image qualities to create a sense of a bridge in, in the, the tumble of the water. And I wonder if this is sort of atypical for you. Well, actually, let me step back and ask, did you set the, the narrative, the theme for the print exchange bridges? Uh, it was uh, one of the ideas that myself and um, some of the officers in the chapter talked about. Uh -huh. Something that I'm interested in as a new transplant to the Quad Cities. Of course, right. we have the river here and we have lots of bridges. Right. Uh, I lived for many years in Portland, Oregon, which sure, has a river sure. and lots of bridges. So, sure. uh, yeah, it just seemed like an interesting, open-ended topic that people could address however they wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, it turned out really well. I think it's a really great range of stuff in the show. The metaphor of the show is what's actually happening with everyone bridging, you know, distance and coming together, and it's just a lot of great meta uh, poetry here, <laughs> you know? We have a range of, like, imagery about bridges or with actual bridges in the picture. We have other far more abstract notions of what a bridge can be. A little bit of, even a little bit of political commentary with, with some of them, you know. So uh, it turned out really well. Oh, we no, no, I'm oh. just laughing at the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, political uh, uh, candidates as bridges. Yeah. <laughs> so would this image be typical of something that you've, you've made in the past where you use type for its iconic image quality over the over the words, or do you, do you play with image and word a lot? I play with or? image and words in my work. In my own artwork, I'm really interested in kind of taking everyday activities and details and abstracting them, so I'm interested in the patterns in, that we make or the, the shapes of things around us. And then I'm not always interested in um, kind of where that's come from, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or I like to play with people and, and kind of don't give them all the details until possibly the end so that they can finally get that full circle so they can enjoy it for the visual qualities and the um, kind of the game of it mm -hmm. until we get to the end of the book. Mm. Oh, so more often than not, you create a, a book structure that's as opposed to individual prints. At this point, you really work with the book structure. Well, I go back and forth. Okay. It depends kind of what I have going on and what, I, what the idea is. Yeah. And I think uh, thinking of the bridges and thinking of the bridges here in town, yeah, I just looked at all the arches and, and started thinking of um, some of the wood type that I had around the shop and, and some of the shapes that it has. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed to be kind of a perfect fit. Yeah, I love it. It's, uh, it's a really successful image for that. And, it, and I also, I love that the dollar signs are in there. <laughs> there's something in it that's really clever about the dollar sign kind of floating under the water, under the bridge, you know. <laughs> so, one of the things that really intrigued me about the book was its relationship with time, the time element, and, and also a relationship of that structure with the body, like uh, the book imagining the book as a, as a body, you know, uh, a body meaning and a physical object that's interacted with. And um, I'm curious what, it sounds like the time element is important to you then, that you would, you would it's almost as if you're revealing a, a joke or, or, or having, having fun and play through time. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's one of the great things about books. You really don't get a chance to do that with most other artwork. Right. 
because, uh, you know, except for something like film, the object's there, the print or the painting's there, and right. you can take more time to look at it and ponder it, but yeah. I, I think there's something interesting about activating the viewer and making them interact with the work mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. really works well with the book. Yeah. yeah. How, or what, it's kind of a chicken egg yeah. question, um, what tends to come first? Do you think of a structure and then develop the narrative around that, or is it? I think it goes back and forth. When I'm coming up with a new idea, I'm usually playing with both at the same time. I go through a number of different models or structures, trying to figure out what makes the best sense. Um, I do a lot of uh, kind of rough drafts with the writing or the text, and and then kind of slowly things start to to come together uh, in a form that seems to make sense. And then at that point, uh, I'm able to kind of keep refining those rough drafts until I come up with an idea that I'm happy with, hmm. and then I can go through the process of kind of making that final piece. So, more often than not, your books are of text? There's some text in them, usually fairly minimal, but yeah. there is at least some setting context. Yeah, yeah. and not so much printed images or... It depends, again, on the, you know, again, I love working with... Um, uh, working with line and shape and pattern, mm-hmm. and so that's a lot of the imagery. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of art, fine art books uh, that combine pattern, stitching, drawing, printed and hand drawn imagery, and all in together, and then uh, kind of binding it all. It just seems like you really get the best of all the worlds when you actually take that step to the book. Uh, from my experience, it was not until grad school that I was given the opportunity to even think about, you know, you could make your own book, and mm-hmm. what would you do when you make your own book? So um, I'm really interested to see, as, as these programs are, and you know, St. Ambrose has a great printmaking and bookmaking uh, program here, degree even a major in, in yes. book writing. Yes. In some ways, we're on the forefront of that uh, for allowing people to explore that as a viable art option. Yeah, I find that there's a lot of um, uh, design and printmaking instructors who are starting to find the book form Mm. and really engaging in it and um, at least bringing in a class or a section of the class. Mm -hmm. And so it really seems to be growing Mm kind of every year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting development. Yeah. Now, how about high and low with bookmaking? How how are you with uh, if someone came to your came to Big River and said, you know, I really wanted to I want to make like a Pulp Fiction paperback book. Mm-hmm. Uh, or a zine. Yeah, a zine. Yeah, staple saddle stitch staple yeah. zine. I mean, uh, how, where do you where do you stand with all that? Is that I, I'm totally fine with that. Yeah. You know, I'm not really set up to help someone make work like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't have a. a, a really big high-end Xerox machine or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But right. I appreciate it. You know, I, I started out teaching at a zine library in Portland, and mm-hmm. a lot of people were kind of doing hand paste up or kind of basic work on the computer mm-hmm. and then um, creating really interesting kind of inexpensive democratic yeah, right. zines. So I think it's great. I love the idea of um, uh, the work getting out there. Mm-hmm. You know, like with printmaking, you know, I love the idea of um, making multiple items so that more people can see it, enjoy it, own it. Mm-hmm. And 
and I think zines really work with that. Yeah, uh, it's not what it's not my aesthetics, so yeah. I don't usually make work in that way. Coming out of like the but punk and the punk yeah. aesthetic, and your, yeah. yeah, democratic for sure. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, they had at uh, Iowa. They had a uh, a zine uh, vending machine oh, wow. <laughs> that they filled with student work every semester. So, and it was in the library. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Are there any uh, books from the show that you'd like to highlight for the podcast? Or you talked a little bit about the range of uh, where, where people are from and, and any particular shops of note that you'd like to highlight? Well, I think the um, piece by Todd Pattison, he's a conservator by trade, but a really lovely, um, interesting enclosure. Mm. So an accordion book with pockets in it to hold each of the prints. Mm -hmm. And then um, really lovely leatherwork on the front and the back, yeah. and interesting kind of end sheets or, or paste downs on the, on the boards as well. You know, I think it's uh, when working with this diverse set of materials, not knowing exactly what kind of prints you're going to get, drawing them together is often a challenge. So yeah. I thought that was a really great solution to having these prints and working with them. Yeah, folded up and kept in the, each slot of the accordion. Yeah, mm -hmm. only one person actually bound the the, uh, the prints into pages mm -hmm. and to, uh, the, the most traditional book. Most of the books are actually, would you call them boxes or are yeah. they, yeah? Yeah, boxes or enclosures. So. Yeah, enclosures, right. Yeah. I also love um, the piece by Andrea Peterson. Uh -huh. She's a paper maker, a hand paper maker by trade in Indiana, and she um, essentially made it a wrapper or an enclosure um, that actually has the form of a bridge <laughs> that you can pull up. And <laughs> yeah, that is incredible. So now, do you have insight into this uh, the paper that she made that also shows up in another artist's print? Mm -hmm. It has the look of a moonscape, but yeah. what I hear is that that was actually done in the pulp itself. Right. So one of the things you can do with paper making is you can use screens, so silk screens, and other ways of stenciling areas. So what she did is she started with a base layer of paper that was black. Mm. And then while everything was still wet, she was able to apply the white pulp on top of the surface. And so once it dries, it's all paper. It's all paper pulp. Oh, so there's a digital image of a moonscape or in a, the stencil. Or a photographic image. Yeah. yeah. Photographic image exposed on a screen. I believe so, yeah. And she's actually squeegeeing white pulp over the black paper. I think she's just sprayed it. But oh, yeah. sprayed it. Yeah. So you can really dilute pulp down, yeah. making it easier to spray through screens. Spray through the screen. Yeah. Interesting. So the, the paper, the sheet, would have had to have been, when it, it wasn't pressed at all, it was still just sort of on? Right, so all this happens before the paper gets pressed uh, and the water gets drawn out and it gets dry. It's going to be very delicate work to make that happen. I'd yeah. love to see that happen. Yeah, it's, a, it's, you know, she does really amazing kind of papers with all sorts of layering and different colors. So, huh. yeah, it's a great technique. Cool. We've got a few more minutes. Um, Emily Martin from the Center for the Book. She created a, probably the most visually traditional sculptural object of the show. Would you be able to describe what's happening there? I think it's called a tunnel book. Yeah, so the exhibit includes not only the prints and the boxes, but an additional piece of artwork by all the participating artists. And her extra piece of artwork was a tunnel book that she recently did at a residency in Florida. 
So it, uh, Tunnel Book has multiple layers with different sized openings that you can look through or look into, much like scrims on a stage set oh, yeah. that go back. And so she, her book was based off some of the fruit labels that they had at the university archives of the local fruit vendors and the fruit oh, sales. So okay. she kind of started with the colors and some of the shapes mm. and then built up these layers. Mm. So I, it's mm. really great. It's very colorful. It's kind yeah. of very sculptural. Yeah. But yeah, beautiful piece. So yeah, it's about a foot square. You really, you really have to look through the whole thing to capture a very buoyant experience. It's pretty wild. Do you want to describe your piece for that it was commissioned for the radish? Is that correct? Yeah. So I include a carousel book, um, much like the tunnel book. It has multiple layers that create a sense of space. Every year, the radish magazine here in the Quad Cities awards gives out awards to community members who kind of better the community. And instead of giving them a plaque, they always give a piece of artwork, hmm. which is, I think, a nice, yeah. nice solution. Yeah. So they asked me to do something, and so I thought about some of the things that the Radish Magazine talks about, about mm. kind of fresh food and the environment and mm. outdoor living. And so took some scenes of that and cut out some of those things. The carousel book's nice because you can open it up and tie it as a mm. three-dimensional object or something that'll stand out, as well as untie it and close it up as a book. Mm. And so what makes the carousel work as opposed to just opening a book and having it wrap around itself? Well, it's carousel books are all based on accordion fold pages or, or a concertina fold paper. And so it's made up of three different layers of different sized accordions. Mm. So the shortest one actually ends up on the outside and spans uh, essentially a circle. And, this, and the other ones reach back into the space of that circle to create the space. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of pre-planning to get all the cuts correct and the yeah. holes correct and then you just assemble it. Yep, yeah. So mine just works with some simple silhouettes of different colors, mm -hmm. but other carousel books often work with text and imagery. So. Okay, so now let's talk about your background for the benefit of <coughs> students interested in the field. Because it sounds like you, you're you have a strong basis in art and the creative side, but also in the conservation side. Did you go to multiple schools for different purposes, or were you able to get all of that through one program? Uh, it's been from many sources. Yeah. So my undergraduate was in printmaking. I found artist books um, right around the time I was graduating. I took a workshop that someone had recommended mm -hmm. um, and really fell in love with the book form and kind of the, the process of kind of planning and printing and assembling the books. Mm -hmm. Continued to take some community classes in, in bookbinding and book arts, mm -hmm. learning a variety of different structures and ways of working. Mm -hmm. It wasn't too long that I'd been taking classes and, and making books that all my friends and relatives heard that I'd been working with books, and then suddenly all the family Bibles and cookbooks started showing up, <laughs> and I said, yeah. can you fix this for me? So that led me towards conservation, uh, where I started learning about different ways of repairing works. Mm -hmm. I spent some time working for some private shops that do book repair, mm -hmm. learning some of their techniques, and then kind of continued on with that interest as well, so studying the... So you really had to do that through a mentorship sort of direction as opposed to... Well, that's the way I did it, yeah. yeah. So. And then I continued to take classes and workshops wherever I could, mm -hmm. usually shorter ones, mm -hmm. and then uh, eventually started working at libraries and their conservation labs. Mm -hmm. I 
and just kind of kept building up that end of it. My master's is actually an MFA in book arts, mm -hmm. so I don't have a conservation degree, mm -hmm. but I had internships and worked at a variety of different libraries over the years, so right, I kind of right. built that up. Right. Yeah, my limited knowledge of conservation comes through on-the-job training at a museum, and the person who trained me, most of what he learned, he learned from Illinois, a place in Illinois that does a lot of... Carpetdale. It used to be. Yeah. Mount? No, it's the normal. It has a program of. It was a small. A, a program that yeah, teaches it. Like, um, yeah, there's a place called the Mount, the Campbell Center. Maybe that's for it. historic and preservation studies. Would you know where that's at? Mm -hmm. It's in Mount Carroll. Mount Carroll. Carol, so yep. it's a, just an hour north of us on the river. Okay. Or just off the river. Uh -huh. And they offer. Um, short workshops to people interested in preservation and conservation so not only do they cover works of working with you know paper and books but they um, have classes on how to conserve and preserve mm. uh, gravestones and, oh. and windows and all sorts of crazy stuff they yeah. do a lot of classes with mount making and museum studies related things so. yeah I think he'd gone there a couple times through professional development grants to he came up through the business in a similar way to you teaching himself and then finding a little bit more specific information is difficult. It doesn't seem like, I, I mean, when he was when he was training 30 right. years ago, it was probably more limited. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah nowadays a lot of people are, um, I think a lot of the conservators are going through university programs, so mm -hmm. there are a few in the states. Mm -hmm. Would you want to list some of the, the best ones? I'm not sure which one's the best. <laughs> but, ones, um, ones that they all have their own strengths. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, NYU has a program in co art conservation, University of Buffalo, mm -hmm. Winterthur, University of Delaware, mm -hmm. and I think that's the three. I may be missing one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so right now those are the ones. Those are great programs to get into, mm -hmm. but they're highly competitive. They only sure. take 10 students a year, wow. and they require you to have a lot of um, pre-program um, internships and, and training. So it's right. a, it's. You know, if you can get there, it's great, but right. it's hard to, to get into that program. Right, right, so. right. And if, if we're talking about conservation, what would be the best uh, lead to that, to that program as an undergrad? Well, I think chemistry, chemistry and art yeah. for any art conservation, you know, um, knowing the history of art and the materials that make it, and then knowing the chemistry of how things degrade and how to care for them. Um, all those programs, I think, require that you have at least some organic chemistry as well as some art history. Mm -hmm. These are open to questions. If you have any, anything you'd like to ask about the show, uh, feel free. All right, well, unless you guys have any more. I was curious what your thoughts were on the piece behind you, the one that's um, done on fabric, because I guess if we're talking, um, you mentioned the matrix, so we're looking for essentially when you're doing an addition they all have to look exactly the same right. but I think the many processes that make up that you can't always put a stitch in the exact same right. place or you know the dye lots of the thread change or what mm -hmm. have you so what, what are your thoughts on that um, sort of where do you draw the line where okay that can't happen because it doesn't well, fulfill your personal right Aesthetics so, or <laughs> so I'm much more interested in making multiples. That's kind of what I'm used to in my background. And it's just the way that I like to make work. But I studied for a number of years with an artist who makes one-of-a-kind books. And he's 
happening with that. So he draws and paints all the individual pages, binds them, and it's just a single item. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting way of working. I think that, again, with my personal ideas, it's, it's an, a single item, so it's hard to share that with a wider audience. Uh, it then gets much more expensive. Uh, I'm able kind of to distribute the price over a number of pieces, making right. it more affordable. But I think that there's definitely um, materials and ways of working that you can't do as a multiple easily or have it make sense. So I appreciate the people who are able to kind of um, have the persistence and thought to, to make one of the kinds. That's a great point. I'd, yeah, I'd like to explore a little more of the idea of affordability with multiples. Um, certainly that's the case with prints that uh, printmakers or artists that come to printmaking to get that multiple uh, are, are looking to have a more affordable option in comparison to things that they may spend a year on or whatever and want to sell for the salary of working for a year. <laughs> right. uh, so if you create an edition in your, in your practice, what sizes are you usually looking at for your edition and, and what kind of price ranges do your books fall under? Uh, it depends on, again, the time that it takes to do it as well as the materials I use. Nowadays, most of my work is done letterpress or relief printed mm -hmm. and then usually bound by hand in some way. So I usually, with those things, I usually keep my editions between 20 and 50. Mm -hmm. um, eventually you run out of room. Yeah, destroying all the parts. Yeah, waiting for someone to ask you to find another one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, so you so you won't actually put the thing together. You'll plan the piece out. You'll construct it. A few, maybe or one, right. from the parts based on the planning. So you have the model set, and then right. you wait for an order. Well, I usually do them in sets of five or ten, depending on how complicated they are. Again, you don't want to spend all your time kind of working on these things and having collect dust. Yeah. yeah. So um, But you but once you're once you're letter pressing a page, you might as well do the whole edition. Right. So anything that's, that's gonna be hard to duplicate, then I'll go ahead and do that procedure as as part of the initial process. Yeah. You know, once I've distributed type I don't want to try and set it back <laughs> up. Do that so <laughs> but I have worked in other ways, so I've done some um, digitally printed books. I've done hmm. some offset printed books for a while. I had access to some offset presses and so I would do editions of a hundred because really once you put all that initial time in, yeah. printing between 50 and 100 is only an extra you know, 10 or 15 minutes of run. Sure, so, sure. Might as so. well take that stuff back with you. Right. And so then you know, uh, an offset book is going to be much cheaper than um, you know, something that I've spent more time and more effort so tell me again, what are the range of your, your prices uh, currently? Well, they books? range between you know, kind of 35 on the low end and 500 on the high end. Oh, that's great. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, don't get much more accessible art-wise uh, than $35. Yeah. Yeah, that's spectacular. Yeah, even a mass-produced book, you can spend Yeah, you buy a hardback. Uh, yeah, 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 like yeah, a sure. college art history textbook. Oh, yeah. It costs more than $35. <laughs> yeah. 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 Most people don't want to keep hold of that. So. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll wrap this up now and um, get ready for the lecture. But I uh, want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, really excited about having this archive available at some point <laughs> in the near future. It's still not yet there. But um, this podcast will exist online, and then the show, the images of the show will correlate so that anyone can come back through the years and see, see what we've done in Catch Gallery. Great. Well, thanks for having me.
This has been Q&A recorded in the Cadditch Gallery at St. Ambrose University in Davenport, Iowa. The Cadditch and Morrissey Galleries are located in the Galvin Fine Arts and Communications Center at 2101 North Gaines Street between Locust and Lombard. All content of this podcast is the exclusive property of St. Ambrose University, copyright 2017, and may not be utilized without express written permission.